everyone, and welcome to Verses from the Void, your twice-monthly foray into the world of horror poetry. My name is Tiffany Morris. Uh, we are back from a brief hiatus, um, and today on the show we have Avra Margariti. Avra, I didn't actually uh, get a bio beforehand, so did you want to introduce yourself to the listeners? Yeah, okay. So, uh, I'm Avra. I am a poet and writer from Greece. And my focus is usually on queerness and science fiction and horror. And my work has appeared in magazines such as Vastarian and High to the Telescope, uh, Daily Science Fiction, Plus Fiction Online. And I just have a lot of plus fictions and poetry in most journals i think at this point yes it's awesome i love being able to um just encounter your work in different ways and different venues it's always a treat (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much for being here today and in Mi'kmaq we like to say jalasi which means welcome come in and sit down so jalasi listeners and jalasi afra oh thank you and thank you for the invitation thanks yeah Of course, when I was developing the show, I was just like, definitely need opera on. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm so happy that the time difference isn't that much because I wasn't sure between Atlantic Canada and Greece what it would be. But six hours isn't too bad. Oh, yeah, it's minus. It's good. Yeah. Um, So I just wanted to get started with some general questions. Um, I know that you write poetry in English. Um, Can you speak a bit about your relationship to writing in English and if there are any like quirks to writing in English that you encounter and maybe you don't find in any other languages that you might speak? Okay, so my native language is Greek and I learned English and German as a second language. But, and here's the weird thing, the only language I write fiction in and poetry is English, because uh, for me, English is a very straightforward language. uh, And I find that I can depict the ideas in my head the easiest when I write in English. It started as an experiment at first. And because I was not fluent in English yet, but I could still write in it uh, for practice, I found that I was not censoring myself as much when I was writing in English. It was like an automated thing, almost like I could pull things from the subconscious and just write without overthinking so much the way I might have if I was writing in Greek. So I think that worked out in my favor writing in English because I could just be as weird as I wanted. And also there aren't many gendered words in English, so I could also explore that aspect of my characters and my identity. Because in Greek, uh, most words have a a gender. They are either feminine or masculine, nouns, adjectives, everything. So there was a certain sort of freedom writing in English without that part weighing everything I wrote down. That's so interesting to me. Um, did I know that like 
for my own writing practice, I like to incorporate Mi'kmaq as a way of like practicing the language and um, bringing the reader into it. Um, did you find that writing in English was good practice? Uh, yeah, definitely. And now more than before, I also incorporate a, a Greekness into English. I didn't used to do that so much because when I was publishing my book, my, my work in English, I wasn't so sure if it was welcome adding Greek words and concepts as a Greek writer. And now I have embraced that, so I am much more comfortable with both. That's great. And I, I think that, um, you know, English has quite a few words that are kind of rooted in Greek. So I don't know if maybe that helps the process at all. Um, I really... Yeah, I... Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> yes, there are many English words with Greek roots and that definitely helped me develop my vocabulary because I was already familiar with so many words or parts of those words so I could deduce the meaning through the context and through the Greek layers of it. Mm -hmm. And I always love um, work that goes between different languages. You know, I love to encounter many different languages and things that I read. So thank you for incorporating all of your language knowledge into your work. Thank you. And you too, like your your nightmare poem that had uh, both English and indigenous words. I really mm -hmm. like that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's just, to me, poetry is a way to play with language in a really interesting way. I Yeah, like I said, I love when people incorporate multiple languages into one piece or multiple pieces. Um, and speaking of things I love, I loved your collection, The Saint of Witches. Um, can you speak a little bit about your process of writing that collection? Uh, so I think if people follow me on Twitter, they are aware that I really love witches. I talk about this a lot. So that theme, the theme of the witch, uh, it emerged naturally in my poems, but I did not set out to write a collection about witches. Uh, I think I just realized that this was a pattern in my work, and then I just compiled everything into a collection. And at first, that collection was a, it was a bit rough around the, the edges, so I had to reorder it a lot. And I realized that even through the witch, uh, the witch theme, I had a lot of other themes. I had the theme of the horror gaze, or hungry ghosts, or flora and fauna horror. And it was really interesting to me seeing what subcategories uh, also uh, organically arose in my work through the witch lenses. Yeah, that's what I think is so interesting about the figure of the witch, because witches can help bring in so many different elements, like nature elements and the supernatural. Um, I thought it was all really awesomely balanced in your collection. Like, um, there was a lot of variety, but it was also very cohesive. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. Um, so 
Uh, did you want to start with some readings? Oh, yes, of course. One Thanks. second. Okay, so the first poem I'm going to read, um, it first appeared uh, in in Vastarian by Grimscribe Press. And Okay, it is called uh, Muse Musculus, Wet Specimen, Feliscatus, Full Body Mount. Part 1. Mouse to cut. You sit regal atop the carved mantle, back arched, front paw poised mid-step. Feliscatus, it's the bronze plaque of your pedestal. Kitty cut, stark white kitty cut. Stripped before me to your bare bones, proudly preserved and artfully articulated. If only I could crawl inside you, count your protruding vertebrae by paw and by mouth, licking the length of your redolent skeleton. If only, if only. Regardless, I sing to you an ode of peroxide and bone, and I thank our collector for bringing us together. Two. Cut to mouse. Curled into a crescent moon, suspended in your crystalline globe, half diaphanous, half iridescent, all beautiful. In life, I would have gobbled you down, relishing the crunch of bone and gristle, the chewy spicy meat. Now, we sit as equals on the mantelpiece, among taxidermied birds, fetal pigs in jars of formalin, and other curiosities. If we had eyes, we would have them only for each other. Pinky mouse of mine, with the smoky dye you once bathed in, staining your lovely bones. Your magenta closeness through the glass dome warms my missing heart. Ribcage, a gradient blue, skull, a polychromatic polarity of red and turquoise, severing my bleached bones. Though we cannot touch, though we cannot be, I picture our tails twining, our sides brushing, our heads rubbing together. My heart has named you Iris. All these colors, all these colors. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, it's fascinating to me that this poem occupies two different personas to explore the role of power and death and that comes together so well in the duality of cat and mouse. Um, could you speak a bit about your inspiration for this poem and the two voices that emerge in it? I wrote this poem during a period when I was really into taxidermy and oddities and curiosities. And in fact, this poem was the first poem of the collection I was, I was going to write, which I did eventually, but it was a very amateur uh, first try at a collection. But also it was valuable because it taught me what a collection can and cannot be. And I also had a lot of fun uh, writing it. And it was a collection around the denizens of a cabinet of curiosities. So the cat and the mouse, they were the first poem in the collection. 
and they set the tone for the rest of the the stories, which were about the different um, bones and gems and cursed strange objects that were part of that cabinet. Um, I really like the idea of death erasing natural boundaries such as predator and prey in this poem. And through death and especially in the preservation of life through death and the objectification of taxidermy and being immortalized on a shelf or on the mantle, everyone becomes equal and the mouse and the cat, they become one transcendental being. And writing through those two perspectives, uh, I had to jump back and forth uh, in time, discuss the before and the after, the life and the death. And it evolved into this love story made of bones and chemicals through this, through this new perpetual reality of the mouse and the cat. I love that. I'm just sitting here absorbing all of that. <laughs> um, it's Yeah, there's so much at work in those two perspectives. And um, I have to wonder, was there much similarity, you think, to the process of taxidermy and the process of writing a poem? <laughs> there's definitely um, seeing which parts uh, need to remain as they are and which parts you need to polish and you know work uh, through them a bit more pared down or you know fill with with preservatives <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's definitely the, the putting together and the disassembling and remaking something new through different realities so that's the the similarity between writing a poem or editing a poem and taxidermy. That's fascinating. Like, I'm going to sit with that for a long time. <laughs> I'm going to be haunted by it. <laughs> um, so, kind of a related question. Um, do you write a lot of poems with non-human personas? And what might you find interesting or challenging about writing those perspectives? I love writing through the perspectives of animals and inanimate objects and natural phenomena. And I find it so liberating because you could explore the different minds you usually explore. And through writing the human perspective, you have to put yourself in someone else's shoes. But in this case, you also have to put yourself in a very different body that you have no way of knowing what it's like occupying. And you have to think how those characters that you are personifying, how they take, us, they take up space in the world, in the world, and how their shapes and their lives inform their perspectives. Mm -hmm. It's a whole other way of knowing and seeing the world and thinking. I don't know if you can hear my cat in the background, but she is weighing in on the topic. <laughs> uh, I can hear her, but 
I'm sure it's very valuable information, Christopher. <laughs> it, she has funny timing like that. <laughs> That's God. Every God ever. Yeah. <laughs> There we go. She left. So <laughs> maybe that's a good time to move into the next poem before she comes back and interrupts again. <laughs> okay, so the next poem is called Sarcosoma and it first appeared in Starline Under the Apple Tree, the very first one, fruits a forbidden fungal cavern of witch's broom, butter, cauldron. Sarcosoma globosum, holy the tritivore, gorging on leaf litter, singing sweet and richer than cherubim choirs, seraphim symphonies. Little golems of mud and bone partake of my primordial sprawling knowledge. Let me teach you how to forage and thrive away from shadows cast by God-erected walls. Have a taste of my fruit, spores spreading between soft palates. Softer lips. Let me teach you how to tell apart nourishment from poison, how to take apart the flesh from the body, but revel in both. Thank you so much. Oh, I love that poem. <laughs> um, it has such rich imagery, and I think that's really beautifully emphasized by the repeated alliteration in like fruits, forbidden, fungal, leaf litter. Cherubim choirs, seraphim symphonies. Um, I think that repetition, like in addition to making it cohesive, I think it really creates a sense of decadence and decay. Um, what's the relationship between this repetition and the images that you're using? Okay, so first of all, I love decay being described as decadent. I love that. Because uh, for me also, Decay can be beautiful as well because nature has a way with symmetry and everything making perfect sense. Um, I really enjoyed reading a theory that the apple of Eden uh, might have been a mushroom instead. And I think for me, it makes more sense that the forbidden fruit wasn't a fruit, but a fruiting body that it was a mushroom, because mycelium can spread spores like knowledge, and those spores can spread far, and they can spread wide, and they can really dig into the minds of people. So for me, it's much more spiritual and decadent than an apple. So I really wanted to show that, that beauty through decay and knowledge through the sprawling of sports. Yeah, that's fascinating. Because um, there's so much that works with that too, right? Like I've heard a theory that language might have come about because humans ingested mushrooms and it activated different um, areas of our brains. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, I, don't quote me on that because I don't know where in science that came from, <laughs> if it's just a theory. Um, but yeah, it's it's an interesting concept of how mushrooms can shape consciousness and how mushrooms seem to have their own consciousness and knowledge. Yes, they have colonies and communities, and we don't know anything about them almost. They are a mystery, and I love that. 
Yeah. And I, I love that this kind of like has some echo to your taxidermy poem too. Um, Cause it's just like, it plays with these dualities and this other consciousness. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love mushroom poetry. Obviously we both love mushrooms. <laughs> I feel the enthusiasm between both of us here. Um, and I know that you're editing an upcoming issue of Eye to the Telescope that's themed on mushrooms. Uh, do you want to talk a little more about what you find inspirational about mushrooms and the call for submissions? Okay, so the call, uh, we opened for submissions on December the 16th. And uh, the call is uh, for poems about mushrooms, fungi, and all sorts of molds. And I think mushrooms are beautiful, and they they symbolized death and rebirth also, and the circular ways of nature. We eat mushrooms for nourishment, but also when we get buried in the ground, when we die, and our bodies they break down, they can become food for mushrooms. So there is this constant feedback loop between death and life, and. I want to see this sort of process in the poems that people send for this call. Um, and I want to see mushrooms put in all sorts of situations. I'm curious to see how poets respond to this theme through the lens of different genres. So, for example, I would love to see like mushrooms migrating to outer space and fantasy mushroom societies. How would the har hierarchy work in them? and spore horror or sporer. And my personal favorite is of course body horror. So I think the mushroom theme would work really well for it. But also I just want to see how everyone interprets the theme. I'm open to everything. That's awesome. Yeah, I feel like Eye to the Telescope, especially um, because it's run through the Science Fiction Poetry Association, um, gets such an amazing variety of genre because it's open to sci-fi, fantasy, horror, and everything in between. Um, I'm so excited to see what people do with the poems and mushrooms. <laughs> and I hope you send me something if you want. I would love that to see you in my queue. Oh, yay. Thank you. Yeah, uh, mushrooms <laughs> appear in some of my poems often too because I'm also fascinated by them. So... I'm hoping the muses will be with me and I will be able to go up with something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, um, well, you probably know this from working on your own collection, but um, sometimes after a collection comes out, I experienced a little bit of burnout. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> like all and... my poetic energy went to making sure everything was together for that. And now I'm just like, oh, <laughs> resting. <laughs> I have not written a poem uh, since I published my collection. I focused on prose instead yeah. for a variety because you're right about the burnout, yeah. Do you, um, do you have a kind of preference to what you write or is it like whatever inspires you in the moment? Mm, I have different periods because usually once I start writing either poetry or prose a lot, then my brain kind of gets required. So all the ideas I have come in the form of whatever I'm currently in the midst of writing the most. 
So right now, if I get an idea, I get an idea as a story, not as a poem, because I have not written poetry in a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's just, um, I don't know, I find that I, I write both poetry and fiction too, so I find that it's just a different kind of source of inspiration. So it's just like, to me, an idea will come and it's like, that's a poem. Or an idea will come and be like, that's a story. <laughs> yes, we usually know, I think, when the idea is born, you can tell what it wants to become if you mold it. So, yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, great. Yeah, I can't wait to read that issue. Um, <laughs> did you want to move on to the next poem? Oh, yeah. Okay, so the next one... It has never been published in a magazine, but it appeared in my poetry collection, my debut, which is called The Saint of Witches, and it was published in April by Weasel Press. So, uh, it is called On the Genesis of Ghosts. Reach down inside me. Rearrange me. My organs have been feeling disassembled lately. React with my lays. Limbic dissonance, limbs like a ball-jointed dolls, flying every which way. I am amorphous, gas, sometimes liquid, rarely, if ever, solid, and not for lack of trying. Pour me in a mold, you holy spirit, then shape me into candles to summon me back to earth. Everything humans don't know, the name dark matter, everything they fear, vindictive God. I've never been so hungry, but let me tell you a secret. To become a ghost, you have to starve for it. Thank you so much. Oh my God, that end line is so chilling. <laughs> when I first read it, I just like, again, like had to sit with it for a minute. <laughs> um, yeah, I think this is uh, most people's favorite poem out of the entire collection, I've been told. Yeah, <laughs> it's funny how those emerge. Um, is it your favorite or? Um, it's not my favorite, but when I was trying to choose a poem for this reading, I think this was the only option that spoke to me that I really wanted to say it loud. So, yeah, that's great. Yeah, it, it reads really well aloud. Um which is interesting. It's related to one of the questions that I'll ask you. Um, I think that there's a real tension in this poem between embodiment and disembodiment. And like, there's a desire for embodiment that's placed in conflict with hunger. Um, can you speak about those themes, especially in the context of ghosts? Oh, oh my God, my relationship to the body is, it's like, okay, the body is such a complicated notion to me and this poem was born from my relationship to it in terms of gender identity and of chronic pain. Mm-hmm. I, I believe it still comes to me as a surprise that the body has needs separate from the mind and that those needs or the body's characteristics, they can contrast those of the mind. And maybe ghosts are born out of an unsatisfied need or they are made manifest 
out of an abstract concept that the mind has trouble reconciling with its physical reality. The unknown factor can also be a ghost. I'm thinking in terms of a vague, queer yearning becoming spectre incarnate or a mystery illness, a haunting stemming from the corpus, the self. So for me, ghosts can be synonymous with a hunger and unmet need. Ghosts can also rise through dissociation, stepping away from the disjointed self and leaving openings for ghosts to nest in, watching the self outside of the ever-changing and out-of-control body. So the existence of ghosts pertains to hunger and to a pain or desire remaining unaddressed. That's fascinating because, yeah, I guess those are things that we typically think of as living in the body, right? Like the concept of hunger is such a physical sensation that when it's taken to that spiritual level, it's really horrifying and creepy to think about it remaining even after our body dissolves. Yeah, and sometimes hunger can take take you by surprise. So, for example, when I'm really into writing a project, I tend to hyper-focus and everything else just falls away and they just exist like in a liminal space where the body does not exist and then suddenly the body reminds me that it exists in an emergency way because I have neglected, neglected it too much. So that's also hard to reconcile. Yeah, I think that happens maybe a lot with writers <laughs> because we live very much in in mind and expression that way so it's like it's, it's easy to be caught up in writing or reading or thinking through this and just be like oh yeah my body has needs <laughs> to drink something yeah, the, the plane of material reality makes itself known suddenly yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um there's also spiritual anxiety um, that emerges in the poem with imagery of like Holy Spirit and vindictive God and the sense of the unknowable. Um, and this is back to the question that I hinted at before. The listeners can't see this, but the poem uses spacing to create gaps and spaces between the words on different lines. Um, so I guess it's a related question. Do you think that ghosts create spiritual anxiety? Um, is that part of what's happening in the poem? So, I wanted the gaps uh, between the words and the phrases where I've chosen to place them. I wanted them to be like a white space, the way we see in art. And in this, in this particular poem, I wanted it to be like breaths between an incantation and a source, a charging of a spell of sorts. So I am not spiritual myself, but I'm interested in the esoteric and the occult. And I'm really fascinated by the way humans approach the great unknown. And we like to give things names, and in giving names, we assign meaning, and as well as decode mysteries. But when some concepts are too cosmic or complex to decrypt, we draw dragons on old maps. We write, here be monsters. Not like those those antique vintage sailor maps we see. Mm -hmm. And 
here be monsters, or here is a holy spirit or deity, here is dark matter and black holes and demons, and it's, it becomes easier to sanctify or demonize things we don't understand, rather than work toward identifying uh, an illness or understanding an identity different to ours. So in the end, maybe ghosts become scapegoats, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's really interesting because it, yeah, it relates back to that idea, I guess, that you're talking about of like yearning and gender and embodiment and like um, tensions that exist in that as well. Like, um, how am I trying to say it? It's like how, how just basically, I guess, how life becomes expressed and how we make meaning of things that we don't fully understand, maybe beyond us, including maybe even ourselves to some extent. Yeah, I like the idea of like maybe ghosts becoming gods because I remember being um, in kindergarten and we were being taught about, you know, the gods of Greek mythology. And when Zeus was created, uh, the reasoning of people we were taught was that they saw lightning in the sky and they were scared. So they decided they were going to create a god out of that lightning to make the fear into a known quantity and a known perpetrator. I wonder about that, because I think about like um, figures like the vampire and how vampires kind of represent us trying to make sense of death and defy death and domesticate death all at the same time. (laughs) Do you think ghosts are similar to that? Yeah, I think so. They can also maybe offer uh, comfort and solace, ghosts, because sometimes we do not want to let go. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, definitely, I think all sorts of supernatural creatures and deities, and they have a very real psychological reason for existing. And that's why the versions of them are, they exist in most cultures, different ways of expressing those creatures, but the notion of them exists almost everywhere, I think, because it's a universal need to assign meaning to natural mm-hmm. happen, ha- happenings. Yeah, that's so interesting to me because it also kind of relates to the, the doll imagery um, in the poem. Because it's like sometimes we feel, and I guess this is kind of like um, like Gaudi's ideas of being puppets and puppetry and like dolls and sometimes feeling like we're at the whims of the gods, but also wanting acts of self-creation, even in knowing that someday we will die. Yeah, it's like, like being created to be helpless, but still wanting to maintain to maintain some agency and to fight for that that which belongs to us yeah that's so interesting and i think that you saying that there's like a ritual element to this makes it make even more sense to me it's like yeah this is um 
the creation of ghosts and also the creation of meaning. So did you want to move on to the last poem, Once an Orchid? Yeah. Uh, and this was published in Microverses. Um, and it's a short one. Uh, once an orchid. Her anatomy, yours to catalogue. On cream paper, in iron galling, the soft parts, the harsh truths. Everything becomes one under the botanist's watchful gaze. Thank you. I found that this was such a startling poem. Um, you get a sense of objectification and embodiment in such a short space. Um, the catalog feels almost like a prison under the botanist's gaze. Um, could you speak about your approach to this theme of embodiment in this poem? Mm, so being catalogued, uh, it can be both a prison since it is someone else who is doing the cataloging. So again, it's about being helpless and at the whims of someone else who holds more power than you. And that someone is looking at you and writing your key traits on a plaque, drawing or depicting you on a page, or preserving you in a herbarium forever. And you have no choice but to trust that this cataloging is done accurately and you have to let go of your control over the interpretation of the self. And it is also a way of being known and remembered. And being known can be scary and vulnerable, but if you are rare or in danger of becoming extinct, of ceasing to be, and then being immortalized on paper is a legacy of sorts. So being watched and seen means that a part of you will remain alive. So there's definitely a duality here between liberation and imprisonment through the act of being perceived. That's fascinating. I think that that's, um, that's something that's of a lot of concern, I think, in this time that we're living in, um, because we have digital legacies now, and we also have many species that are endangered, uh, different languages that are endangered. Um, I know that as a Mi'kmaq person, you know, uh, Native people have a very mixed relationship to anthropology and being on record in that way. And um, yeah, and that, that legacy being important and that historicizing and that, um, availability of history is important but also just like the power of the person who is doing the catalog cataloging yeah. is also very important and what that relationship is i'm seeing a lot of really interesting um exploration of who holds power in these poems that you're reading today yeah in this case it is who does the cataloging because the cataloging like you said it can be an act of violence and erasure and it's an interesting thought who writes history and who does the cataloging and why don't the people uh, who are who's the, the the people that the history is about why don't they have a say in it 
why must they hand over the power to someone else to do the writing down and the cataloging? And it's an interesting conversation. Yeah, I know that you've talked a little bit online about, um, you know, Greek history and Greek mythology um, and people being in- inspired by it and the complex relationship that emerges in that and how um, historically, you know, Greek culture has been seen almost as like a free for all. Um, was that something you had in mind while writing this too? Not when I was writing this particular poem, but this is a concept that has been on my mind a lot because I love retellings of stories and myths, but I do not enjoy retellings, you know, someone else having power over you and retelling and rewriting your culture and history mm-hmm. uh, in place of you and taking your place. But I love the rewrites of the myths. So this is something that I've had in my mind, this duality and where the balance lies, Mm -hmm. Uh, the line between appreciation and appropriation, which is something that, you know, a lot of people can find relatable through our different identities uh, and culture and language and everything. Yeah, it's really interesting to me because I think Um, Like we were saying, you know, it comes back to that power relationship and also, like you just said, whose voices are being told and um, thinking about this poem, like uh, what the function of the cataloging is. Is that related to the harsh truth that the orchid reveals or what is the harsh truth that the orchid reveals? So because the poem is so short. Uh, I intentionally left this uh, vague, but for me, the the truth of the orchid is the balance between permanence and impermanence and what this means in nature and what this this means being immortalized through history. So, yeah, I think I didn't do this on purpose, but the poems I chose all have a common theme today, I just realized. (laughs) <laughs> but this was accidental. Yeah, the the gaze and the being immortal and transcending death and endings and being seen and put on a pedestal and on a page and everything. Yeah. It was definitely it's... a theme today. <laughs> it's a great balance, you know. We have the taxidermy to start and then we have this cataloging at the end and it's like yeah that journey <laughs> with the mushrooms and the ghosts has been a great through line <laughs> great curation it's like my mind is very good at seeing patterns but i don't realize i am doing doing these patterns it just happens and then afterwards someone points it out and i'm like oh yeah i did that i don't know how but i did that <laughs> yeah and that's why i'm also writing a literary flash fiction and this also just happens subconsciously. That's why I love class so much. And with poetry, of course, with speculative poetry. This pattern seeking, it really soothes my brain. Yeah, it's uh, it's fascinating that humans are wired for it so much <laughs> that sometimes we don't even realize we're doing it. <laughs> um, And, you know, 
I think the beauty of poetry especially is like um, when you place them together, you can kind of see a pattern emerge regardless, like, you know, um, and you can see maybe themes that show up that you weren't entirely <laughs> aware you, you were returning <laughs> to. Um, yeah. And it's it's interesting because they're not repetitive at all, right? Like these four poems, they speak to each other together. Oh, that's good. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I guess we'll be wrapping up here. Um, was there anything that you'd like to talk about or anything you'd like to promote for the listeners to know about? Um, if the listeners enjoyed the poems I read today, uh, my book, my poetry collection is available uh, from Weasel Press. It's called The Scent of Witches. And yeah, I think that's it. Great. And also the, we already talked about it, but just a reminder about the Mushrooms Call for Eye to the Telescope. Oh, uh, yeah. When does that close? You said it opens on the 15th. Oh, um, it closes. Okay. I'm not exactly sure, but it's definitely open for at least two months. So okay. it's maybe two or three months. So maybe February. There's there's enough time, you know, if anyone Perfect. wants to send something. Great. Yeah, because I think this might be airing in January. So obviously, listeners, you will know when this is airing because you'll be listening to it. <laughs> um, I just want to make sure people are able to get their fabulous mushroom poems in. And yeah, and to read The Saint of Witches because I loved it. And I think it's popped up on multiple best of 2022 uh, lists. Yeah, I'm really grateful for that. The yeah. people who have been enjoying this and you know promoting it. Yeah. I'm really grateful. Absolutely. I it's on one of it's on my top list. So <laughs> 2022. <laughs> and in general. Well, thanks so much so for I just wanted on. to thank you for inviting me. It was great talking to you. I loved all your questions. They were so intuitive and you know they just it made me I really think what the poems were about. I love that. Oh, thank you so much. I really, yeah, I I could keep gushing, but I won't. <laughs> I really appreciate you coming on. It's been lovely. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time. <laughs>